All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews 8 is where we'll be. Short chapter, so short night tonight. That's a warning for the Sunday school or Wednesday school ministry. Fair warning. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the singing we've had, the worship that we've been able to partake in together. And uh, this uh, this is just a nice night for us, God. To let you calm our hearts and to speak to our hearts and to just have that fellowship with each other and with you and your spirit. And just a time of refreshing. As uh, We're in the midweek here and we still have Thursday and Friday to go and some other days, Saturday and Sunday if we work the weekends. And we sure could use just some refreshment from you. So we pray your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and touch our hearts and minister to us and um, do everything you want to do for us tonight. And we want to, we want to reciprocate. We want to give back everything we can to you, God, our full attention, our full minds and hearts. And uh, our ears are opened, our eyes are ready and help us to see, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I like this chapter mainly because of the first few words. I need these kind of times. It says, now this is the main point. Thank you. That's all I ask. Could we start every chapter in the Bible that way? This is the main point of the things we are saying. So Paul, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews is going to sum up for us. Here's what I've been trying to get at for these first seven chapters. For you Hebrews that seem to be walking it back, moving back towards a shadow, he's going to call it an obsolete way. He's going to say again in this chapter, For those of you leaving the new way, the way, the only way of Jesus Christ, and I'm here to tell you, here's the main point. We have such a high priest, meaning Jesus, the one we've been talking about this whole time, order of Melchizedek, a replacement for the priesthood in general, a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. He's going to take the next few verses here and compare a little bit or somewhat the copy that Moses made in the Old Testament, the one we're all used to, the, the, the tabernacle, the tent that was mobile, a mobile worship sanctuary. But it's all and always was a copy of what the real was. And he's saying, we have a high priest now that's entered in to the one that that was a copy of. And so the idea is, if you're going back to that, it's like you're going back to a model (laughs) when you have the true available to you. So don't go back to that model. It's far better, obviously. A couple things to note here is, first of all, it's the main point. It's what I want to talk about. It's the whole point. The volume of the book, he's going to tell us later on in Hebrews, the volume of the book is written of me, Jesus. The whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is about Christ, whether that's directly or indirectly, whether that's prophecy or whether that's types or whether that's foreshadowing. It's all about Christ. It's all about his complete work at the cross. That's the main point. We have a high priest who's seated. If you can picture in your mind what the temple would look like, because now while this writer is here, 
writing this book of Hebrews, the temple is there, not the tabernacle anymore. The temple is the permanent structure, the building. It was busy all the time. It was constant, constant, constant work. Constant sacrifices in and out. Daily sacrifices, evening sacrifices, morning sacrifices. Just this constant work. Well, that's changed now. Or changing, he's actually going to say, it's obsolete and becoming obsolete at the same time. And we'll talk about that towards the end. It's the last verse, actually. But we have a high priest now, Jesus Christ, who's seated. Those guys never sat down. There was always something to do. But Christ, when he said at the cross, it is finished, there is no more sacrifice to offer. There is no more work to be done. Jesus has entered into, as the high priest, into the Holy of Holies. If you don't know how the tabernacle was laid out and the temple, but we'll talk about the tabernacle since he's speaking of that. The tabernacle was a tent with many layers, and they're all symbolic. We don't have time to get into that tonight. And there was a, outside of it a, a place for a, an altar for burning the sacrifices for the priest, a, a place to bathe for the priest to get cleansed. And then they would, after going through those steps, would able to walk up into the first part of the tent, the tabernacle, which is the holy place. And that's where they would serve most of the time. To their left was the menorah. We call it a menorah. It's the lampstand. It's got seven lights on it, seven lamps on it. Pretty big. On the right side as he walked into the room is the table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe, symbolic. And in front of him would be the altar of incense, which is where he would spend his time praying. And that's where he would offer incense, the smoke would arise, and like the prayers of the saints would rise up to God, so the smoke was was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. But there's this big, thick curtain right there on the other side of that that keeps and bars and prevents people from going to the Holy of Holies, which is on the other side of that tent, or on the other side of that curtain, thick curtain. And on the other side of that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is on top, so there's this ark, it's a box. Inside of it is Aaron's rod from you know, a past experience in the Old Testament, showed that he was the true and the only one that could be uh, a Levite, a, a, a priest, and his group was the only ones, and nobody else could do it. So there's the budding olive branch there that happened miraculously. Inside is also a little jar of manna. If you remember the story where God's little uh, his provision of this wafer-like substance that would land on the, on, the, on the grass every morning and would feed the entire nation of Israel in their 40-year journey in the wilderness. And so they've got a little uh, you know, representative sample of that in there. Then there's also the, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. They're in there also. So that's what's on the other side of this curtain. And then on top of that is this mercy seat. So it's basically a throne, a chair for God. When the tabernacle was first built, God, and it was all done, his Shekinah glory, that's what they described it, his Shekinah glory. I mean, you know, it was him, but it wasn't. It was his glory. It was his, a light. This, it would settle there and just shine. And they knew that God was present. Okay, that's important for this. They knew that it was there. Now, these priests would come into this holy portion and do their thing. And then once a year, they were allowed, after many sacrifices and all these things they had to do, to go on the other side of that blue curtain one time a year. The Day of Atonement, atonement for the entire nation. It's the, big, it's the big day, the big forgiveness day. 
And they would do everything they were supposed to do, and they would go on to the other side, and sometimes they'd do well. Most of the time they came back out and said, forgiven, forgiven at the end of the day, you know, at the end of their sacrifice. Sometimes they wouldn't come out. They'd die on the other side. There were bells around the bottom of their ephod that would jingle when they walked. Now, we don't have this from Scripture. This is extra biblical, so take it for what it's worth. And they would have a rope tied around. And so they'd hear the jingling. They knew everything was okay. But if the jingling stopped, Bob ain't coming out. And so they'd pull him out. In other words, the point of that, regardless of whether it's lore or not, makes no difference. It's true statement that you needed to be perfect to get on the other side of that. And it at least had all the sacrifices in a row and ready to go for you to walk into that other side. Or you were considered unclean and not worthy to be there, and you had to be, okay? What the writer here is telling us that what you guys are going back to, that old service, that old, uh, very ritualistic, people love ritual, very ritualistic, very uh, very formal, very uh, I can't but he can relationship with God, had to go through a priest, can't do it yourself, It was all a type and all a picture and all a foreshadowing of what's happened now with Jesus Christ. All of it was meant to point to the man, Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. And that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. He he went through the curtain, the blue curtain, Sky went up, went through, goes to heaven, goes to the Father. They see the symbolism there. And is seated there. He's never coming back out again because he stayed. It's perfect. And if you know the story, when Christ died on the cross, at the temple, it's in Scripture, the earthquake, the whole thing, the, the darkest night in the middle of the day, it was a horrible time, a scary time for everybody. That veil, that thick blue curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Proving it's done. There's no more barrier. There's nothing left. Jesus went through it and stayed and he's seated there. He never has to come back like the old high priest used to. He's seated there. A minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. This is the real, he says. Very important. That's the main point. There's nothing to go back to. There's no tabernacle to, or temple even. I'll give you a scripture. Well, no, that's later on. I get ahead of myself. I got it all in my head and I'm excited to get there. I got to slow down and draw it out for you. Okay. Go slow. Verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. We talked about that. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus, our high priest, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he he was about to make the tabernacle, For he said, God said to him, see that you make, Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Make that copy, make that shadow, make that model. 
but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he, Jesus, is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. You're moving from better to less is what the writer's trying to get across. You're not improving. You're not making improvements to the better covenant by adding the old covenant back into it or, or going back. To, you're not. You're not doing anybody any favors. You can't add to it. It's perfect. It was all showing you him, and you have him now. Those things are a copy and a shadow. In Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, Paul, he does write this one. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. He's the real. He's the one casting it. See, a shadow gets, is, is thrown. It's, it's, it's just blocked light from something, right? When you cast your shadow on the ground, there it is, you know? But if you weren't there, the shadow wouldn't be there. The shadow that's spoken of in the Old Testament, all of it, the entire law, all, the Ten Commandments, the, the feasts, the, the new moons, the festivals, the sacrifices, the temple itself, was a shadow cast by the Savior who's coming. As a kid, I used to do that. I'd have to walk home from school. This is a terrible example, but I'm using it anyway. I can't stop now. But late in the day, I would cast this long shadow on the way home, and there were bullies that would follow me home. But Jesus isn't a bully, so bad example. So, but I could tell how close they were if I could start to see the head of their shadow. Okay, so you get the idea. It was kind of a warning for me. Run, you know. Yes. Then I hit him with my metal lunchbox one time, and that was the end of that. I knew you were worried about my health. And... Jesus cast the shadow. He cast all this. The idea was he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. That was the intent there would one day come a day when the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, spoken of in Genesis 22, God himself will provide a sacrifice. Always telling us. And so until that comes, you guys keep reminding yourself every day with these sacrifices that the Savior's coming. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is coming. The shadow is cast. And here he is. And he's come. And so for the life of the writer, he's trying to say, why are you going back to that? That's ridiculous. Go to the one who casts the shadow. He's available. He's open. He's made a way. Why would you go back to anything less than the better? You serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Jesus serves the actual. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Why do we need a second covenant if the first was faultless? He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'm going to pause there. We're in the middle of a, of a prophecy out of Jeremiah 31, but I, it's a good place to stop. There's one covenant, covenant of if you do your part and I'll do my part. Basically, you follow the law, you get in. Okay, that's very simplistic, but that's the idea. But there was fault with that. See, it's a contract. I sign here, God says, and you sign there. Now, the fault wasn't with the contract and the fault wasn't with God. 
The fault was with us not being able to fulfill that contract. So it didn't work. The law couldn't bring us. The first covenant can't bring us because we all faulted. We defaulted on the contract. That's what he's saying. I found fault with the first covenant. And he'll elaborate on that a little bit, but just to make sure we don't think it's God. In fact, he he says so in verse 8, because finding fault with them, not him, not the law, says, I've got to come up with a new way. It's always been, that's, that's my way of putting it, but we've got to go to the new covenant because the old covenant isn't going to work anymore. You've defaulted on it. And so that's the point. A new covenant with the house of Israel. I promise you that. In fact, it was prophesied. I, I find it interesting when there's this idea that because in, in a lot of New, new Testament believers, this is... A, This is what they say. Maybe you're not one of them, or maybe you've never heard this. Praise the Lord. But that you only read the New Testament because we're New Testament, we're New Covenant people. That's that's the catchphrase that they'll use. You'll hear it. We're New Covenant. We're not Old Covenant. We're New Covenant. And therefore, we don't read the Old Covenant. Well, first of all, the Old Covenant explains so much about who Jesus is to us, who Jesus is to the Father, but also is prophesied that he's coming. Why would you not read those things? Prophecy is so important. And so even when the writer of Hebrews, who's a a new covenant guy, and trying to tell people not to follow the old covenant anymore, the new covenant, he still uses the old covenant, the Old Testament, to explain it. So of course we should still read it. Of course we should still study it. It it gives us a deeper, more uh, rich understanding so don't buy that if you hear that. that. That's just people that don't want to take the time to read it and to study it because it's that's a lot. And it is. I'm not saying it's not. But I want to know everything about Jesus. And if the volume of the book is written of him, he says so. I want to read the volume of the book because I want to know everything about him. So here he begins to quote Jeremiah. He's a one of the bigger prophets, along with the mean by that is longer. He's a longer prophet. Jeremiah 31, and it's 31 through 34. Um, and so I'll finish reading it here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, he found fault didn't work because of them, not because of him. They did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's a wonderful new covenant. In fact, they would read that, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and be excited about that day. Oh, what a day. It's a wonderful thing. They look forward to it. Well, the writer here is saying, that's happened. Jesus has come. He's the new covenant. 
He's fulfilled the law for us. He's signed his name on both sides of the contract. If you do this, we couldn't do this. So I am in the Father and you are in me and therefore we're together. We've nested ourselves into Christ. And he's fulfilled all the things we couldn't fulfill. His righteousness, his perfection has been imputed to us. And that's good news because we couldn't make a way for ourselves. We couldn't be good enough. And even if we were good at one point and stopped being bad, we couldn't undo the bad that we did. That had to be paid for. There had to be something that's being taken care of. It has to be, there has to be punitive sentencing. He desperately wants him to know that. You can hear his heart in this. Please understand this. This is the main point. The Old Testament is of great value to the New Covenant believers. I wrote these things down so I didn't forget to say them. (laughs) Although the old is obsolete, it contains the promise of the new and the explanation of Jesus through the copy. We learn so much from watching these things. We wouldn't know what the veil being ripped from top to bottom meant if we didn't understand what the temple was all about and that it was even there. We wouldn't understand the sacrifices that had to be made, the propitiation for sins, that men would lay their hands upon the animals that they would bring and pass their sins from themselves to the animal, and the animal would get slaughtered. The death and blood is required for the remission of sins. All of that is important. We wouldn't even understand what John meant if we didn't know the Old Testament when he pointed at his cousin and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What, with a cart? What do you mean, carries it away? I don't understand any of that if you didn't read the Old Testament. You got to know it. It helps us understand. He wants us to know. God is conforming us from the heart outward. He says that I'm going to write my laws on their minds and on their hearts. It's different. The law was very visual, very superficial. You could really fool a lot of people with your outward-looking religiousness. (laughs) Just do the rituals, show the pious face. But the heart, hmm, that's what got Paul stuck. Paul would hear about all the the laws and says, I've kept all of those. Those are okay. It's It's the coveting. How do I stop that, Paul says. That's something in my heart. I don't know how to do that. You can't. Only God can. The relief and the good news of this new covenant is meant to be shared with those that it is no longer a works-based approach to God that you simply receive the forgiveness and ask God into your heart and he begins to change you from the inside out. And as my heart gets changed and as my mind gets changed, and the desires of my heart and my mind change towards God and away from the world and the flesh and the sin that I used to enjoy, all of a sudden my outward actions begin to reflect what's going on in my heart. It's a wonderful new way. I can appear Christian all day long, but to be is something God has to do in our hearts. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a new covenant I'm going to make with you. I'm going to place my laws in your minds and write them on your hearts and I will be their God and you'll be my people. It's going to be an amazing thing. So personal, so close. Who Jesus is to us 
who he is to God, the Father, who he is as a person, and his mission and ministry are all explained in these things. It's hard to overemphasize this, and I don't mean to pause and be dramatic at all. It's just to let these things settle in our hearts, I think, is very important to get this. There is a constant attack on this, and it it doesn't ever end. Um, I don't know if you ever get to a place where you don't have, in a weak moment, that draw towards ritual, towards we would call it modern day vernacular is just going through the motions. Um, it's almost, a, it's seducing in a way because it works. Honestly, I don't know you and you don't know me. I know what I see. I don't know your heart. God will give us spiritual discernment, spiritual gifts, words of knowledge, words of wisdom occasionally. But for the most part, I believe what I see. And and we're called to that. Love believes all things. If that's what you say, that's what you say. I believe what you say. Unless your actions show otherwise, then I know and I follow that as opposed to what you've said. But until those actions show up in someone's life, you don't know. I don't know their heart. No man knows the heart of another man except God. Only God knows the heart. I use that at funerals all the time. You know, you get asked to do a funeral and you do your best to try to ascertain their walk with the Lord if you don't know them. And um, it doesn't change actually what you're going to say because that's not the place or the time to start talking about, well, I don't know if they made it or not. I mean, you don't say that. You do make it clear, though, that the way of salvation is the only way to heaven. You make it clear that here's the path. And they say, and everybody I've talked to says they followed that path. And that's all we know. No man knows the heart of another man except God. No man knows what was said or spoken in the heart in a coma. In a, I mean, I know we're reaching, but it's a big deal. I'm willing to reach. God says, I want to speak to your heart. And I want you to speak to me from your heart. And that is the conversation and the only conversation that matters. Yes, I think you should go to church. I think that's important. And I think you should read your Bible every day. I think you should pray as often. I mean, you can't pray enough. Paul says he stayed in an attitude of prayer. Constantly. He prayed without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean he was on his knees and never came out of his closet. It just means that even while making a tent, he was in prayer. Even while in conversations with other people, he was in prayer. He was always connected to the Lord and talking to him and bringing him in. I, uh, for me, at this point in my life, you know, it's, it's, the prayer life is becoming more and more like that, I mean. And I wouldn't say it's maddening, but it's like, I can't get away from it. I'm constantly talking to him. It's, you know, always. And it's a good thing. It's very comforting to me, but it's amazing that I need that much comfort. You know, sometimes you wonder, you used to be able to go a week without really even thinking about it. Not anymore. I'm talking about it all the time. 
all the time. God, wear my socks. Like he cares. Like that's what he needs to hear from me. But it's like that all the time. Just this constant contact. Aren't you thankful that we have a God like that that wants to talk to us and have that kind of relationship with us? And I hope you kids who are in this room know that too. He just loves talking to you. And only you and him have this wonderful relationship and conversations that are going on. Please continue those. Now, going through the motions, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but because I don't want you to go through the motions, like, like coasting, I guess. It's like coasting on your bike, you know, when you'd coast. It's a dangerous thing to, to coast. But, but, that being said, I would, I would encourage you, whether you feel like it or not, open your Bible anyway. Well, I don't want it to be a religion. Well, it isn't, or a ritual. No, but a habit, maybe? I'm going to read it anyway. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there may be times when you're at odds with your wife or your husband or a friend, maybe. And if you don't open your mouth and talk to that person, that gap and that, that chasm can get wider and wider and wider. And as hard as it is maybe to make that first contact or that first conversation, you've got to do it. You have to do it. So if there are times where you become ritualistic, at least continue to talk to God and open yourself up for him to refresh, revive, whatever he needs to do. We all know whose fault it is. It's never his He's not distant. We've become distant. So we have the obligation, I think, to walk back like the prodigal son to our dad and make that walk. Now, he may not need us to say anything at all, although we've got our speech prepared. We still need to make that effort. And so I don't say it's follow the ritual or coast, but I think you should always make that effort and, and talk to him and open your Bible and allow him the opportunity, at least, to speak to you. Because he doesn't want broken fellowship. That was the whole point of Jesus. And we don't want broken fellowship, although we feel it. There is that responsibility for us to follow through and to make ourselves available to the relationship. I encourage you to do that. Don't let that time build, you know, a long period of time anyway. Um, What amazing thing that verse 12 is. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Um, turn to Matthew nine thirteen. I'm way ahead of schedule, so we can take a little detour here. It wasn't planned, but let's go there anyway. Let's go go back to verse 12. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because he mentions, he describes us in a certain way that's very helpful to me. I'll tell you where I stand most of the time before we read it. Most of the time I think about myself, well, and you too, but I don't say that out loud, that our sins are a choice. It's willful disobedience. We know better. We ought not be doing it. 
Got it? Okay. Well, here's what he says. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, these are the religious people of the day, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I'm very thankful that he sees my willful, rebellious disobedience as a sickness. I'm not absolving myself of the responsibility at all. That's my job to make sure that I kick myself in the rear. I like to do that, and I think we should. I think we should have that conviction to get right, because we know. But he says, I have come to those who are sick. He sees our sin in our lives, your sinful nature, my sinful nature, as an illness that needs to be treated, and he's the only one that can treat it. I'm thankful for that, that he sees himself as the doctor of my life, as the physician who has the prescription, who has the treatment necessary to make me well. He's come for that purpose. I see you down there sick. I'm coming. It wasn't grudging. It was like a physician who has taken the Hippocratic Oath. I will do no harm. I'm going to do good. I'm going to do everything within my power. Oh, but sometimes I wonder, that's the battle I have. And that's probably Satan, you know, just those conversations or those thoughts that come from myself or my flesh or whatever that say, you know, he's kind of tired of that. You, you say you're sorry a lot. You ask for forgiveness a lot. And about the same stuff, he describes himself as the physician. He describes my problem and my sin as sickness and that he's the cure. And I'm very thankful for that. So he finishes with this. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's, that's where he finishes his thought. I see it as a sickness, and I've called you to repentance, which is the prescription for the cure. That's what it is. That's the treatment. Repent. Turn from it. I'm very thankful for that. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want to be merciful, he says in verse 12. It's interesting. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. It's a decision. It's a choice he made. Choosing to do this. Mercy is a choice for him. I'm very thankful for that. Finally, verse 13. In that he says, the first uh, he, he, I'm sorry, in, in, that, in that he says a new covenant, this new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's confused some people. Well, if it's obsolete, isn't it now? Well, it is, but it's growing old and it's starting to vanish away. And I'll give you most everybody's opinion on it anyway. This was written in 64 A.D., and it was in 70 AD that the temple was destroyed. Now, I bring that up because um, that's the vanishing away. Eventually, there won't be a temple anymore. You're going through the motions right now. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. In, in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, when Jesus comes into the temple, it's, he's, he's, he's coming in on the donkey. Everybody's, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. He says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
I've left the temple. The Shekinah glory, the presence of the Lord, any of the rituals, anything that takes place there from here on out is for nothing. I've left the house. I've left it to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when the writer of Hebrews is writing this at 64 AD, he knows that whatever's going on, the activities, the rituals that are still taking place at the temple are not being honored by God. They're going through the motions, they're going through it, but I'm not there anymore. The new covenant is Jesus at the cross, at the crucifixion, three days dead, rising from the dead. That is the new covenant. That old thing that you guys used to do on Saturdays at the temple, mm -mm, this is it now. So although they didn't believe and they rejected their Messiah, and they're still going through the motions, he goes, that is obsolete. That way is obsolete, and it's going to vanish away. So almost prophetically, when he says this to the Hebrews who are still going on Saturday to the temple to do these things, and the disciples did too, they went to pray there. But there were no sacrifices to offer for them that was done. Pretty soon you won't even have the building to go to anymore, and then it won't be an issue. And there hasn't been since. The temple's gone. Here's the thing. Everybody's looking for this, this new temple. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they've got everything made. You've heard the stories. We've talked about it here. Everything's in a warehouse ready to go. And as soon as they get the land and they're able to do it on top of the mount where it belongs, in the Dome of the Rock, which is, oh, it's in the way, you know, we'll figure that out later. We're ready to go. It doesn't matter whether you find the red heifers. It doesn't matter whether you, which is required. It doesn't matter when, none of that. It's all made for nothing. The temple will be built, but it's being built for someone and it ain't Christ. And it ain't their Messiah. It's made for the Antichrist. He's the one that goes in there three and a half years after the building of it. Sets himself up as God on the throne and they're like, Ooh. that was a lot of work for nothing. It's simply prophetic. It just lets us know. That is an old way. It's an old vanishing way and will vanish away completely. You're going back to something that won't be there in six years is what he's telling them. It's gone. I think people gravitate towards the ritual because they feel a lack in the spiritual. I mean, I know that's why, I know that's why they do. And I just want to encourage you, as you may go through that in your life sometime or in your walk with Jesus, to focus on why the spiritual isn't growing, why the spiritual isn't happening, why I'm not hearing the voice of the Lord, why the Word of God isn't speaking to me, why I'm not feeling directed by the Holy Spirit anymore, and I feel this necessity to go back to something that's more external than what God wants, from my heart to his heart, from my mind to his mind. So you may not need chapter 8 tonight. You may be in that wonderful place that we all should stay. But we get chapter 8 for a reason because it's written down for all eternity that a lot of people, a lot of believers will go through this temptation or this draw or this seduction to go back to the ritual. And it can easily replace, if we're not careful, and we've seen it maybe in loved ones' lives, replace Heart to heart, they don't know what you're talking about when you say it to them. 
Oh, I was just praying and the Lord really spoke to my heart. You heard him audibly, they say. Well, no, I don't know how to describe it. We've talked about this, haven't we? There's physical senses, which is what the natural man always gravitates toward. What do you mean you saw God? What do you mean you heard God? What do you mean? No, I'm talking about the spiritual senses, the sp- faith. That's a spiritual sense. These, when I was born again, I've been given these new senses. And so I hear, I hear the Lord, but I don't mean I hear him. I hear him. I know I don't see the Lord, but I see him. I know his word didn't literally jump off the page and dance around, but it had life on it and I couldn't get it out of my mind. I don't know how else to describe it to you. And there's a, a warning there. I'm having to describe it. It's telling on them. And they don't even know they're telling on themselves. You mean you don't hear the Lord? The word of God doesn't jump off the page to you? It, you, hmm. it's, you need to pray for them. You need to talk to them about being born again. It's very important. Because somewhere along the line, they've reached for ritual. And it's replaced the intended new covenant that we're to have. Written on our hearts. Written on our minds. A spiritual walk with the Lord. So important. And that's where we close tonight. Five minutes early. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. The Old Testament, it's, it's hard to read only because it just seems like it's a lot. We're thankful for it, God. And we're thankful for how it explains and teaches and shows us and did everything it was supposed to do. It brings us a tutor to bring us to, the, to you, to Jesus, to our need of a the necessity of a savior. We're thankful for all of it. And we know there's nothing wrong with it. It's absolutely perfect. It's from you. We know who's at fault. It's us. But Lord, we're so thankful that now you do want to speak to our hearts and that we can speak to you and we can know that you've heard us. That We can read your word and it becomes life to us. It's not a dead book. It's not a philosophy. It's not something to be studied or to get dust on. It's living. Your word touches our hearts and changes us and, 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 and convicts us in ways that nobody else could. In such a gentle, beautiful way. You're such a good physician when it comes to these things. You're so careful with your word in our lives. To get to the point for sure, but in such a way that it can be received from you. Of course, we want that. We want to be able to minister to other people that way. To get to the point... We don't want to mince words and we don't want to waste time, but we want it to be in such a way that people can receive it. And we know that that's by your spirit in our lives that we're able to do that. Not by the flesh, not through any other means, but by your spirit. So we're thankful for this new covenant. We rely on it. We won't return to the old or we won't try to add the old to the new. We won't try to layer them. We've accepted that he is the substance that casts the shadow and we have him. And we're so thankful for you and that we have you. I pray that you bless these folks tonight. That they walk closer to you than they ever have before. That they'd hear you like they've never heard you before. That they'd see you. That your word would speak. And they'd spiritually have their antenna up. <laughs> and able to see every situation with a, not just a biblical worldview, but a spiritual worldview. Able to see the needs of the people in front of them. And to minister to their hearts. And to let you minister to them. God, and to help them. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're a wonderful counselor, a wonderful friend, a wonderful God, a wonderful father. In Jesus' name.
Amen. If you need prayer before you go, there'll be some brothers up here to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the night.